Take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 10 together this evening. Barry O'Berney's neighbors and co-workers in Northern California knew him as a simple, quiet man who always wore a San Francisco Giants baseball cap, used the treadmill at the local gym, and generally was an all-right guy. One neighbor told the local news that we rooted for the same baseball team. I would see him walking through the neighborhood just like I did, and we were both retired, and there was a quick, hi, how are ya, between us. Everything changed in Bernie's life, however, on June 6, 2018. A team of Air Force special agents arrived at the door of his townhouse and arrested him for desertion. See, Barry wasn't Barry. Barry was really William Howard Hughes, Jr. He had disappeared 35 years earlier while a captain in the Air Force assigned to Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico. Specifically, he was assigned to the Air Force Operational Test and Evaluation Center, which tested new weapons and equipment for service. But Hughes was not just any airman. He had a top-secret clearance, a single-scope background investigation, which meant he had access to the U.S. Secret and North Atlantic Treaty Organization secret information. And when he deserted... In the 80s, the Cold War was still at the forefront of people's thoughts. Nuclear war with the Soviet Union threatened to wipe out life on Earth at any moment. And since his specific duties included that classified planning and analysis of the NATO command control and communication surveillance systems, people were wondering. His vanishing act was almost flawless. Family and fellow airmen were taken completely by surprise and had no idea where he had gone for over a third of a century. His family feared that he had been abducted, but others suspected that he had defected to the Soviet Union. After his, his arrest, he confessed that he was depressed about being in the Air Force, so he left and made up a new name and a new life as Barry and lived in California ever since. He had even married a woman who took his fake last name, and he worked as an actuary and consultant for the University of California in Oakland. And Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, is writing to the churches in Galatia because of a very difficult problem that they were facing. This evening, I'd like for us to look at verses 6 through 10 at the danger of desertion. Paul typically begins his letters to these churches with an expression of thanks or praise about the church. He even expresses thanks for the church at Corinth, and we know all of the difficulties and problems that they were filled with. And yet he does not include that typical greeting here to the churches in Galatia, because the danger that faced them was a severe danger and a severe danger that faces Christians across the world today. And Paul writes in verse 6, I marvel, I'm astonished, I'm shocked 
that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. As Paul is writing this letter, one of the purposes is to remind the believers at Galatia to not lose sight of what they had been called to do. We see, first of all, in verses 6 and 7, Paul's confusion at the church's desertion. As he deals with the flock, Paul here uses a mild language. I marvel that ye are so soon removed. It's taking me back. It's shocking. I can't believe that this is what's happening. Unlike the Bears game. We all expected it. There was no shock there. But Paul, dealing with the church, comes down mildly, not harsh in his rebuke, but he's astonished that this church is so quickly removed. He is affected and amazed that this could have happened. These churches in Galatia had embraced the gospel. They had heard the good news, that grace which brings salvation that has appeared to all men as we saw this morning. They had given themselves to God, but in a very short time they were led astray. They had adopted opinions that tended wholly to pervert and destroy the gospel. Paul is surprised. Before we come down too hard on these believers in Galatia, Let's consider ourselves for a moment. Gifts are not natural for us. I love a birthday gift. I love Christmas gifts. If you miss Christmas, my birthday's coming up in April. You got time to plan. I love a good gift. But if you are like me, this scenario may go through your head when you receive a gift. All right, I got a brand new baseball cap of the Chicago Bears from my sister-in-law for Christmas this year. Retail value is about $29.99, so next year when I have her name in the Christmas exchange, I need to get her something equal to or greater than that monetary value because if I give her something that's less than that, I feel like I am indebted to her. And I don't know, I may be the only one who does that. Okay, i got to remember what you gave me last year to give something better this year. We don't like the idea of owing somebody something. When you look at major world religions, okay, every major world religion is a works-based religion. Why? Because as a human being, we don't like the idea of getting something for free. We feel like we have to do something to earn 
that gift. And that's what the church at Galatia was dealing with. The free gift of salvation is wonderful. But there is something within every human being that makes us not like the fact that that's free and we feel like we have to do something to then earn or work for that gift. And Paul is shocked, not just that this desertion is happening, but that it is happening so soon. The words that he uses here in the Greek, the adverb carries the idea of a very short length of time. Paul is writing this epistle to the churches at Galatia within two years of their founding. Paul is saying, I am shocked that it's less than two years and the simplicity of the gospel is already being perverted. Some of you are already going astray for the, from the simplicity of the fact that Jesus died for our sins. But the idea also carries the the adverb also carries the idea of the ease with which this is taking place. The idea here is that you're just kind of letting it happen. You're not standing up against it. And I think both senses of the word can be seen here. I think of Paul's reminder to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he goes through and he lists some of the things that happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. And he writes that all of these things happened unto them for examples. They are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. When we read through the Old Testament and we see the stories of the children of Israel in the wilderness, I don't know about you, but Oftentimes, when I read those and I hear, read about their complaining and I read about their bitterness towards Moses and I read about all the bad things that they're doing in the wilderness, I can tend to be like, man, what's wrong with these guys? They just saw God deliver them out of Egypt. They just crossed the Red Sea and within two days, they're complaining. But Paul writes that those stories are an example for us. And in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians, he concludes that section with the statement, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. It does not take much for us in our own lives, even if we think that we are planted firmly, to quickly slip back into those sins that we loved before. This desertion is not a simple philosophical difference. It's not a matter of the church at Galatia arguing over whether they should have pews or chairs. They're not arguing over whether they should use a piano or an organ. But these differences, this desertion is a turning their back on God. Paul says, I am astonished. I am shocked that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. And that idea removed is not that somebody is taking them out. You know, if you go to the cookie jar and you remove a cookie, that, that's our English understanding of the word. But the understanding and the meaning behind it is not that I'm taking the cookie, but the cookie does not want to be eaten by me, so that cookie leaves the cookie jar on its own and runs away. At least that's what my children tell me happens. I don't know. But Paul is shocked that these 
individuals, this church is deserting God unto another gospel. One commentator has said this, we must never forget that the Christian life is a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A man does not become a Christian merely by agreeing to a set of doctrines, but he becomes a Christian by submitting to Christ and trusting him. Our Christianity isn't a rote list of rules that we are to do or not do, rules that we are to follow. Our Christianity is about our relationship with Christ. But even as Paul is writing this, his shock at their desertion, the fact that he is putting this in the scripture at all gives us a hope. This desertion isn't final. He uses the middle voice for the verb for desertion, meaning it's not yet completed. Or in other words, there is still hope for restoration. Paul is writing this not just to condemn the church, but to encourage them to allow that same grace that brings salvation to teach them how to live. To go back to the simplicity of the gospel. Because their desertion is to another gospel, which as Paul so simply puts, is not a gospel at all. They are turning their backs from the hope that they have in Jesus Christ to a hope that is empty. Adding works to salvation. When we are saved, we are saved by grace. That's it. We can't do anything to add to that. We don't need to. But at the same time, not only are we saved by grace, when God looks at us as Christians, even though we still sin, he does not see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness applied to our account. And the church at Galatia, as Paul writes through this letter, he has to deal with, and we'll look at it in a few moments, the idea of adding works to righteousness. What can we add to the righteousness of Christ? Absolutely nothing. In the same way that we can do nothing to earn our salvation, when, Jesus, when God looks at us and even though I am sinning, God looks at me and he sees his son's righteousness. He doesn't see anything good that I can do. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, all the good that I can do, all of my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I I can't add anything to the righteousness of Christ because he has already given his perfect righteousness for me. And the church at Galatia was dealing with individuals coming in and they were trying to add to that free gift of salvation by saying, in order to maintain this right standing, you have to do these other things. You have to live this certain way. And Paul is saying that's not the gospel at all. You're putting your hope in something that is hopeless. Adding works to maintain our salvation. And Paul goes and after his marvel at their desertion, he gives the cause of their desertion. The back end of verse 7 through verse 9, there be some that trouble you. And who would pervert the gospel of Christ. 
But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. And Paul is shifting from those who have been misled, from that shock, that gentleness, I am surprised that you are going astray, to now those who are doing the leading astray. And he describes them as troubling the church. The word troubling carries the idea of shaking up. My daughter loves snow globes. Perfect gifts for her, snow globes. You take that snow globe, and it's all beautiful and serene and peaceful. Now, for snow globes, you're supposed to do it. Okay, you turn it upside down and you shake it as hard as you can so you have all of the beautiful glitter falling down and hopefully it doesn't fly out of your hands and shatter against the floor. But you take that snow globe and you shake it up and you stir it up. And that's the idea that Paul is getting at. These individuals are coming to the church at Galatia that had the peace of God in their life and they're stirring up problems. The gospel is clear. If we remember back to when we had the exchange almost a year ago, the gospel is very simple. God is holy. I am not. God is righteous, and because he is righteous, he must judge. And because I am not holy, I am rightly under his judgment. But God is love. God provided a way for me to escape that judgment through his, the death of his son on the cross. And God is gracious. He offers that salvation to me. That's the simplicity of the gospel right there. But these individuals had come into the church of Galatia, and we have these individuals who come into churches today who seek to add to the simplicity of the gospel. And when we add things to the clarity of the gospel, we end up muddying it up. We're familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But he wrote a second part as well. The second part follows the story of Christian's wife, Christiana. And in the second part, Bunyan wrote, Now my old friend proceeded and said, but when Christiana came up to the slough of despond, she began to be at a stand. For, she said, this is the place in which my dear husband had like to have been smothered with mud. She perceived also that notwithstanding the command of the king to make this place for pilgrims good, yet it was rather worse than formerly. So I asked if that was true. Yes, said the old gentleman, too true. For that many there be that pretend to be the king's laborers and that say they are for mending the king's highway that bring dirt and dung instead of stones and so mar instead of mending. 
And if we remember the slough of despond and pilgrim's progress, that's where Christian is trying to get through, but he gets stuck in the mud and he begins to sink until he is rescued. And between Christian's journey and his wife's journey, the king has sent individuals to make that path more clean. But the enemy has sent individuals as well who pretended to be the king's men. And instead of making that path clear, they made it worse. To the church at Galatia, the clarity of the gospel was being muddied by the law. And we see this throughout the book in chapter 2, verse 14. Paul has to confront Peter. I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, then why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Peter, why are you telling these Gentiles believers, these Gentiles who are saved by that same grace that bringeth salvation that the Jews are saved by, why are you requiring them to put themselves under the law? Verse 21 of chapter 2, For if righteousness came by the law, if you could do something to earn righteousness in the sight of God, then Christ is dead in vain. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the covenant that God made with Abraham, that from Abraham there would come a seed in, by which all the nations of the world would be blessed. The law, which was 430 years after that covenant God made with Abraham, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, then it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. God made that wonderful covenant with Abraham before the law was even given. And Paul is arguing that the law, which was given by Moses over 400 years after the Abrahamic covenant, that law cannot make that covenant null and void. In chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. And you have these individuals, these Jews coming from Jerusalem, who are trying to make these Gentile believers submit to the Jewish law. The Jewish law that could not save them. And in so doing, they are muddying, they are troubling the waters for these believers. Those who were being misled were troubled. But the grace of Christ to which we have been called provides a peace and not a trouble. When we start adding works to our salvation adding works to our righteousness, adding works to our security, we have that feeling like we need to do more. God, I know you sent your son to die on the cross to pay for my sins. I understand that. I appreciate that. But I feel like I owe you something. And no matter what we try to do in our flesh to fill that obligation we feel that we have, we can't. 
And we have individuals who go throughout their entire life who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but they think that they need to do something more. Can I just encourage you? You don't have to. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left that crimson stain, but he made it white as snow. And when we seek to add things to it, we become troubled in our spirit, and that is contrary to the peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Paul wrote in chapter 1, verses 3. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul tells the church at Philippi, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And Paul is condemning these individuals who are trying to lead the church astray. In the end of these supporters, Paul makes very clear. And I notice that Paul does not put himself above the possibility of falling into this trap as well. He says, but though we, or someone else. Paul recognized that in his sinful flesh, he too can fall into the trap of perverting the simplicity of the gospel, of adding things to it. He cautions the church against new angelic revelation that is contrary to the gospel. But though we or an angel, you know, we live in a culture that is just enamored with the idea of angels coming. And we want to receive an angelic message. If we can just sidetrack. Okay, guys, we've talked about this in Sunday School. Revelation chapter 1, we see Jesus holding seven stars in his hand, and those seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3. Those angels are the pastors of the church. So if you really want to hear a message from an angel for how to live your life, listen to your pastor. But Paul says, even if you have an angel... Come down and he gives a gospel that is different from the simplicity of the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says, let that individual be accursed. And that term accursed refers to the final destruction. The term there is anathema, a thing that is doomed to destruction. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, let him be cursed, maranatha, until the Lord return. It's a term that Paul uses and wishes upon himself in Romans chapter 9. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul is saying, I wish that God would put the wrath that all of the Jews deserved on me so that they could go to heaven. That's how seriously he took the gospel. 
this end, this final cursing and destruction had been warned. Paul said, as we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. That as we have said before, so say we now again, suggests a wide interval of time. Meaning that this is something that Paul would have previously warned the Galatians about. Possibly when he started the church, when he was with them. We see this warning is similar to the warning he gave to the pastors at Ephesus, at Miletus in Acts chapter 20. For I know this, Paul tells them, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember how that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. This is a warning that Paul is used to giving. And he repeats this condemnation, moving from the realm of the hypothetical. If an angel were to preach a different gospel to the realm of reality, if anyone preach a different gospel, let that individual be accursed. And Paul concludes in verse 10 with the cure for desertion. It's a simple question. Do I persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men or God? Why am I here? Who am I trying to please? Paul brings this concept to a close by addressing how we can strengthen our resolve against desertion, and it comes down to our motivation. Why do I do what we do? These false teachers were seeking to build their own reputation, specifically the ones who were coming into Galatia to see how many Gentiles we can get circumcised, how many Gentiles we can get to follow us. We still have individuals today, wolves in sheep's clothing in pulpits across the country who are striving to build their ministries, seeing how they can get people to adhere to their principles. True teachers of the gospel, however, seek only to glorify Christ. As Paul wrote several times, follow me, imitate me, as I follow Christ. So this evening, as we conclude, just very simple. We'll keep it as simple as the gospel. What is the gospel that we are believing? Is it the simple gospel outlined in the scriptures that Christ died for our sins? Or have we, out of guilt, started to add things to that gospel to try to earn more of God's favor, muddying those waters? Because we don't have to. What gospel are we believing, but also what gospel are we teaching? Are we keeping the gospel as simple as it is? Or are we trying to add things 
to people to trouble those waters that Paul is warning against in this passage. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the gospel is simple. The result of believing the gospel is a peace that only you can give. Father, I pray that if there is one who is listening tonight who is trying to add to the simplicity of the gospel to try to earn more of your favor, to try to please you, may they just have the peace that you can give, recognizing that your son paid it all and that there's nothing that we can or need to add to the gospel. Father, may we be clear and simple in our giving of the gospel as we share with those around us. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.